excitement and the privilege that's ours tonight. The songs that we have been able to sing together, the prayer in which we've already participated, the opportunity of fellowship, of course, not only with one another, but more significantly with God, and the peace and the harmony that reigns at the Pippin congregation, things for which we each should be greatly appreciative and very thankful, because certainly there are places, congregations, for which such peace and harmony does not reign supreme. But it does here. We had a profitable business meeting this afternoon. The men did in, in the weeks and the days ahead. You'll be hearing more things about that which was discussed. And certainly we look forward to the opportunity of merely doing God's service. Ironically enough, the title of the lesson tonight. In our continuing study of the book of Exodus, we began last Sunday evening a series of lessons based upon the book. The very one our youngsters are studying for the Bible Bowl, of course. That's what prompted us in this direction. And as we give some thought to the way in which we're doing this, I would like to take a moment and express appreciation on the congregation's part to our youngsters who are participating, but also to remind each of us that we also have an opportunity to encourage them by also studying the book, doing those puzzles and participating along with them so that it's a congregational effort, not just them but all of us, having an opportunity to encourage them as well as ourselves learning more about the book of Exodus. Sometimes as we look at the Old Testament, some of the books may seem a bit unusual, some of them may seem a bit detached, some of them may be such that we find it difficult to make those practical applications to today. I have attempted to set before myself the realization that Exodus, just like every other of the 66 books of the Bible, is practical in its nature. It's true, there's a history there, the children of Israel, but what was written to them is meaningful for us as well. And there are lessons that you and I can extract, apply in our lives, that will help us be better Christians. And tonight we will look into chapters 3 and 4, seeking not only to rehearse a bit of that history, but to also revisit some of the lessons to be seen in those two chapters. With those introductory remarks made, we first of all will do that which we did last Sunday evening. We will remind ourselves of the history, the record as the Holy Spirit has seen fit to provide it to us, and then we'll close our lesson with a more interesting focus upon some of those intent lessons that we may be able to find therein. When we closed our lesson last Sunday evening, we were in some ways left with a bit of uncertainty in that the children of Israel suddenly found themselves in some unfavorable situations. Though they had gone into Egypt in a time of peace, and though they had known prosperity for much of the time they had been there, we came to understand that there arose a king, a government in Egypt that no longer was favorable to the children of Israel. In fact, the government was fearful of them. Their numbers had grown to the point that in time of war it was thought that they might well side with the enemy and thus cause great difficulty and perhaps even defeat for the nation of Egypt. And thus they decided to enslave the children of Israel, to no longer allow them to enjoy the freedom and the liberty that they formerly had known, but rather that they would become the slave labor of the government of Egypt. And so they constructed treasure cities, but that too did not in fact stop their growth. In fact, they continued to grow even more abundantly. 
We notice the king resorted to yet plan B, kill all the baby boys born to the Hebrews, and he gave that order to the midwives. But it too failed. In the closing verse of chapter 1, finally he gave the authority to any Egyptian to kill any Hebrew baby boy that was just born. As we saw in chapter 2, Moses was born. We will remember that that name wasn't initially given to him because his mother, in fact, placed him in that little ark that floated in the flags beside the river, the reeds, if you please. And it was Pharaoh's daughter who spotted him. And as the ark was found and his own mother was able to rear him for some time, and only then was he adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, we saw the hand of God's providence working. Here was the deliverer who should have been slaughtered, but yet he was saved. And as such, he would be the instrument that God would employ to lead this people ultimately out of Egyptian bondage. Through the rest of chapter 2, we notice that Moses had to flee because he killed an Egyptian. And when Pharaoh learned of it, Moses feared for his life. And so here he was in a far distant place called Midian. While there, he came to meet a young lady. He married her. In fact, he worked for her father for many, many years. And that brings us to the close of chapter 2. God heard the groanings of his people. And as he did so, he decided to commission. It was his will to commission Moses to lead his people out of Egyptian bondage. With chapter 3 opening before us tonight, the story continues without fail. And it continues without skipping, if you please, even a beat. For as you can see in some of these notes, as we turn, in fact, to that chapter, chapter number 3, you'll notice that some of the things that I have written there remind us of some of the high spots in this chapter. First of all, would you appreciate with me that as Moses was in Midian, here he was, again, so far from Egypt, and yet it was he that God chose as his instrument to deliver and to be that one who would bring the people out of Egyptian bondage. You'll notice that this was that rather famous scene of a burning bush. As chapter 3 opens, Moses is on the backside of the desert. Thus, he is tending to his father-in-law's flock, and as he turns and looks, there is a bush that is aflame with fire, but the bush is not consumed. Moses turns aside to see what this is that's occurring, and God speaks to him out of that bush. And as God does so, God first of all reminds him, take off your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. As Moses gives appreciation then to the scene in which he now finds himself, he next hears words like this. God says, I have heard the oppressions, the groans and the cries of my people, and I am come down to deliver them. Verse 8 of Exodus 3. And then two verses later he says, Moses, goest thou, thou goest to Egypt and bring my people out of bondage. And here Moses recognizes he is the hand-selected one by the God of heaven to go back to the place from which he had fled 40 years earlier. And as he was now shortly to go back, he, of course, begun to be a bit fearful. In fact, as you remember with me, some of that with which Moses responds, he responds, oddly enough, with questions. Questions. Think about a conversation between you and God and you responding with questions. Consider these questions. Moses, first of all, says, Who am I? 
In fact, that directly is found in Exodus chapter 4, verse number 11. Who am I that I should go and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God quickly responds with assurance and with confidence. In fact, it might be summarized in these words, I will be with you, Moses. And furthermore, he even gave him the assurance that when you lead the people of Israel, my people out of Egypt, you and they will worship on this mountain where you're now standing. You might take note with me that he said when. He did not say if you lead them out. He used that word indicative of the fact that it was a certainty in the mind of God and it ought to thus have been in the very mind of Moses. But after hearing that, Moses asked another question. This one did not settle all the doubts and all the uncertainties in his mind. He asked another. He said, but when they ask, who has sent you? Moses said, they're going to ask, what is the name of the one who has sent me? In essence, what is your name? God responded with that rather famous statement, I am that I am. And as we notice as the verse closes, he said, you tell that I am has sent you. And here God makes reference to a way to refer to him. You simply tell them that I am has sent you. You and I might look upon that as a rather unusual way to refer to oneself. But notice God is a self-existent one. From eternity to eternity, he has always been and he will always be. I am that I am. Upon hearing that particular response, Moses responds yet again. And you'll notice that as he does so, some of the following thoughts now directly appear to us. It's at this point that God gave orders to Moses that he would ultimately appear before the Pharaoh, and as he did so, he would carry the very nature of the affirmative declarations of the God of heaven. No suppositions, no opinions. Moses wasn't going to the Pharaoh to share what he thought or what he supposed or what it was that he felt would be the best course of action. He was proceeding with the very declarations, the proclamations of the God of heaven. With that said, you might note one of the next matters is God forewarned Moses that the Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. In fact, in that language that we've so often referenced in our Sunday morning Bible study hour, this was a statement that the Pharaoh would have the opportunity to make his decision based on the evidence that would be presented to him. One by one, the miracles that Moses would do, one by one, the plagues that would be brought upon them, all of them were such that the Pharaoh would be able to make his mind up concerning the source of the power and concerning the consequences of it. He's going to harden his heart. He will rebel against the declaration of God and his proclamations, and as such, he will stand as an adversary to heaven itself. As God forewarns Moses of these things, that still did not satisfy completely Moses. He raised some other objections. Objections. I've tried to summarize them in language like this. First of all, he raised the objection in terms of the appearance of God. In essence, Moses is going to say, but they're going to say that the Lord hasn't appeared to you. In essence, they perhaps will claim, you're a daydreamer, you're hallucinating, you've seen things, but God has not appeared to you. 
God directly provided answer. In fact, he proceeded to give to Moses the power and the capability of performing three miracles. First of all, Moses cast down that rod that's in your hand. Moses did so, and right before his eyes, it became a serpent. God then said, Moses, you reach forth and take it by the tail. Moses did so, and it turned into a rod again. Secondly, Moses put her hand into your bosom. He did so, and when he drew it forth, it was as leprous as snow. God then said, Moses, put your hand in your bosom again. And when he extracted or drew it out, it was again just as it had been initially. And then God went on to say, if they are not convinced based on these two, consider this, you take water from that Nile River. He gave Moses the power, the opportunity to turn that into blood. In the consideration of each of those three, we might stop to give some thought to the fact that to every one of the questions and every one of the objections that Moses raised, God provided an answer. A superlative answer, a complete answer, a thorough answer. Notice Moses still was unsatisfied, perhaps because he understood the enormity of the task that rested before him. In finality, he finally said this, O oh Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and I am slow of tongue. Please send by the one whom thou choosest to send. If you and I might put that in the language of our day, Moses in essence was saying, I can't speak well. Send someone else. Send somebody else. At this point, isn't it interesting to notice how God replies to this final objection? I would invite you to notice verse 14 of Exodus chapter 4. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee, and when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. Isn't it interesting? It says that God's anger was kindled against Moses. He had heard apparently enough of these questions. He had heard enough objections. It was his predetermined will. It was his decision that this was his instrument. It was to be Moses. Moses had been reared in such a way he was the perfect choice. But notice, his objections and questions resulted in the kindling of God's anger. With that said, the chapter races to its conclusion. And some of the final thoughts that you and I might notice. Moses proceeded to go back to his father-in-law, and he thus requested that he be allowed to leave in peace. And as he did so, he soon prepared his things and proceeded on that journey back toward Egypt. As he did so, one rather perplexing matter takes place, beginning in verse 24. God sought to kill Moses. He sought, in fact, to bring injury and harm to him, and we might immediately ask, how and why? Here was his instrument that he chose to lead his people out of Egypt, and now he wants to kill the instrument. We notice particularly in verse number 26, So he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. Due to Moses' failure to circumcise his son, Gershom, who had been born by that time, 
We learn that God was upset with him. God was dissatisfied with his actions. And God, in fact, brought an illness upon Moses. He was very sick. And his wife, upon recognizing the source of that sickness, it was she who circumcised the boy. And upon the circumcision, God let him go. As we will see in a moment, that has a great lesson in it for you and me today. When he came to the people in Egypt, when he came to the children of Israel, verses 29 through 31 close with this interesting statement. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads in worship. The people were excited to hear that God had shown forth favor to them by sending a deliverer and by equipping him with the proper means whereby he could bring them out of Egypt and lead them away from this rigor and this oppression that had so afflicted them. Having looked then at that scene of events, we might immediately now question that which will follow, which will wait for our next lesson. But now we're going to notice that Moses, as God commanded, will go before Pharaoh. How will Pharaoh react? What will transpire? Will he accept the message with favor or will he respond with rebellion? Next Sunday night, we'll see the answer to that. But for the remainder of our time this evening, looking again at some of the features of chapters 3 and 4, what might be some matters and some things that could be of great help to you and to me as we seek to understand the lessons found in it for our life in this day and in this time? Might I ask you to think back to the burning bush? As we start that scene, that's one of the most familiar records in the entire book of Exodus, the scene of the burning bush. We teach our youngsters about it in our Bible study classes. We perhaps have pictures that they color where there's a bush that's on fire and Moses is perhaps standing in front of it. And he takes off his sandals and he bows before that bush. We find that record in Exodus chapter 3. But what was a lesson critical that Moses needed to learn and one that you and I should also take to heart? Perhaps it would be this one, an understanding of the very holiness of God. An understanding and a particular and appropriate respect for the holiness of our God in heaven. In fact, in verse number 5 of Exodus 3, we remember that when Moses began to turn aside to look upon the bush, it was then that a voice, the voice of God, came forth and said, Take off the shoes from off thy feet, for the ground on which thou standest, or the ground whereon thou standest, is holy ground. Now we give some thought to the fact of holy ground. What is holy ground? What constitutes it? You and I live in a world where very, very many in our country feel that the nation of Israel, that little parcel of land that's not that large, but it's where the city of Jerusalem is, and it's where some of the other more famous places in the Old Testament are found. There are many in our world who consider that to be holy acreage, that there is something unique and very special about that land relative to the nature of its holiness. Well, I ask us to give some thought to the tabernacle in Exodus 25. There, God's presence, he promised to be with them. And notice, he punished under penalty of death anybody who entered that most holy place inappropriately. What made this particular place of the burning bush holy? 
was not the fact that the bush was there. It wasn't the fact that this was, for instance, Mount Horeb. What made it special and holy was the fact God was there. And might I ask us to give some thought that that singular note is what makes our worship services, for instance, so special. Why we should treat them with holiness and the understanding of the one who is the audience of our worship. When we come together, for instance, in worship, sure enough, we encourage each other, but the principal one who is the object of that worship is God. It is He that is being honored, and it is He who is being revered. It is He that is being worshipped. And thus, we should not treat worship like we're going to a social club event in Cookville. We shouldn't be treating worship as if we're going to the movie theater to watch a movie. It's somewhat ironic, isn't it, that there are some in our world who perhaps look upon events like that in a way that is equally as special as the way they view worship. It simply ought not be that way. The time we come together like this this evening is indeed a very special time to appreciate the holiness of God. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It is the whole of the reason you're here and the reason that I'm here, to fear Him and keep His commandments. We might take note that that statement begins with fear Him. We should have a healthy respect for Him and understanding that when we come together, it is not merely a time to treat Him like our best friend. Though there is never a closer friend than His Son to us, that healthy respect that we have for Him leads us to note that Jesus still said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 4 verse 10. With those thoughts in mind, Moses was first of all led to understand, this is holy because I am here. No wonder when you and I come together, it's a whole different situation than when, say, we're going somewhere in Cookville to watch a movie or perhaps to go out to eat at a restaurant. We may have a good time there, and we may in fact be there with people we enjoy associating with, perhaps family members or brothers or sisters in Christ. But that's not a worship service. And thus there is a continental divide in the understanding of the holiness we appreciate when we gather for those special occasions to appreciate that holiness and to in fact lift the name of God so high among us. But not only that lesson, consider yet another. As you see there near the bottom of that slide, Moses needed to learn another rather valiant lesson. It had to do with the accomplishment of God's will. I would direct your attention again to chapter 4, verse number 8. Let me read the opening part of that verse. God speaking says, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God thus told Moses that I have come down. God thus was going by some means to make his presence appreciated here upon earth. I have come down, he said. And then two verses later in verse 10, Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That is no contradiction. In the one verse, God says, I have come down to do this. 
Two verses later he says, Moses, I'm sending you. It is significant that God was going to be the power behind the effort, that he was going to be the one indicating and carrying out the activity. But the one that on the surface of it upon earth would appear to be the leader was Moses. God was going to act through the agency of Moses. That leads us to perhaps ask the question, what about today? In the very day in which you and I live, none of us questions or doubts the greatness of God's power. God can do anything that he so chooses to accomplish. He can choose to work any miracle that, in fact, you and I would consider it so. His power is unlimited. But when it comes to the accomplishment of the work of the church, he has left it in your hands and in mine. If the sick are visited, you and I will do it. God won't come down in a miraculous fashion and embody himself in the form of a man and go do it. If the sick are visited, it is left to you and me. He has challenged and commanded us to do it. As far as inviting those who are not Christians to come to our services, you and I must be the ones to do it. When it comes to acts of benevolence to help those that are hungry and thirsty and those that are without proper clothing, God has commanded us to do that. In that sense, it's very much likened unto what he commanded Moses. It is the work of God that will be accomplished, but you and I are privileged. Yea, we are honored to be those who are able to work in his kingdom to bring about those efforts. Is it any wonder in Ephesians 2 verse 10, you and I are said to be his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. A lovely passage, isn't it? That you and I are his workmanship. For what purpose? Created in Christ Jesus. To what end? Unto good works. In Titus 3 verse 14, near the close of that small book, we remember it was to Titus that Paul said, And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary purposes. The maintenance of good works. You see, you and I are those that in essence fulfill the task of being the hands of God. Not that we have, of course, his power, but that he has challenged us and he will work through us to bring about his will. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 8, isn't it true that we learn that when Paul told the Corinthian brethren, ye are God's husbandry, that is to say, ye are God's fellow laborers and fellow workers. You and I work together with him. Is there any better vineyard in which to work than God's? Is there any better master than him? Isn't it lovely to think about the wages for those who work in his kingdom? I would submit to you then that just as Moses was the instrument that God selected to bring Israel out of Egypt, you and I are the ones who have volunteered to labor in the kingdom of God. And in that vineyard, you and I will labor faithfully, doing the things in our life, allowing ourselves to fulfill his commandments. We still read in 1 John 5 verse 3, his commandments are not grievous. In thinking then about these two lessons, they perhaps move us to consider yet a third. As we give some thought to the accomplishment of God's will, let us now think about some of the features of chapter 4. We noted earlier that when God commissioned Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, Moses' first reply was questioning him. 
And we finally notice he replied with an objection. Send someone else. I can't speak well. I'm not eloquent. I would ask that we give at least a moment's thought to a lessened title. What good reasons might there be for not serving God? What good reasons might there be for not carrying out His will in our lives? Are there any good reasons? Some of the passages that I would ask you to consider here. Think about Moses' situation for just a moment. Moses was fearful. First of all, remember, he had fled from Egypt when they were seeking his life. Perhaps, in, in, a, in a sense, he was a bit concerned, maybe they're still searching to kill me. Perhaps another reason. Here was a multitude of perhaps two or more million people. God, you expect me to leave this many people through a wilderness back to Egypt or away from Egypt? Perhaps any of us could imagine the magnitude of that task. No wonder Moses was a bit hesitant. No wonder he was more interested in giving this a second thought. If you don't give some thought to all of that, notice this resounding truth. In the mind of God, none of those objections was satisfactory. None of them. To every one of them, God reiterated with confidence and with assurance, Moses, you are the one. All of these questions you have raised do not present satisfactory reasons for me not to commission you. And that includes the very last objection that he raised. I can't speak well. Even that was an unsatisfactory reason. You see, God already had a means and a plan whereby Moses could be the instrument to lead them out. Perhaps you and I could give some thought to that matter today. How quick are you and I when a program arises or a work perhaps is ready to be engaged in and done? Am I quick, perhaps too quick to say, but I'm not educated enough. I just don't know enough to do that. Or maybe I'm too quick to say, but I don't have the time for that. Maybe I'm too quick to say, that's better suited to, to brother so-and-so. He's trained in that. He's skilled in that. That's far better than what I could ever do. Maybe each of us are quick to respond to a given need in a fashion like that. In essence, to shift that to someone else, when all the while we may not know the circumstances that other person is in. Maybe that other person has a burden in life right now that doesn't permit them to do it. Maybe just like Moses, you and I are the one that God would prefer and that it is His will that we take care of that. In those circumstances and situations, might I ask us to at least think about a verse or two. In Acts 17, here was a learned man, admittedly, the Apostle Paul. As he had arrived at the city of Athens on that second missionary journey, he had the boldness and the confidence and the courage to stand before those Greek background people and to proclaim to them the nature of the fact that the statue or the image that they had erected to the unknown God was in fact the true God whom they needed to greatly admonish and consider. And thus, when we arrive at verse 30, he said, the times of this ignorance... God winked at. Might we seek an application of that in our life today? When I think about, I'm not educated enough, I don't know enough. 
Have you ever been in a situation God will allow and find a way to use you and to use me in his kingdom? Maybe he will pair you and I, perhaps with our spouse, and we can assist and complement each other. Or maybe with another brother in the congregation to help train and teach and learn. Maybe, again, we shouldn't be so quick as to say, but I can't. Maybe in prayer we should say, but God, with your help, I can and I will. We at Pippin are blessed to have an attitude of I can, rather than too quick an attitude of I can't. I'm thankful for that, and our elders are as well. Maybe you've been in groups or other congregations in which too quickly the answer is so often, but I can't. When you and I recognize that in the New Testament we can, for I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, to quote Philippians 4.13. Or in that famous language of Luke one thirty seven, there is nothing impossible with God. When you think about what he accomplished through sometimes some individuals of the New Testament that didn't look as if they would be the proper choices, and yet through them was great instrumentality to the cause of the Master. Think about some of those apostles. Fishermen? You're choosing fishermen to be the very ones who will be the initial leaders in the church? Surely you're kidding. And yet the Lord prayed all night long in Luke 6 verse 12. And the next morning he went and selected those that would be his apostles. He chose men that were fishermen like Peter and like Andrew and like James, and like John. And later we find a tax collector, namely Levi. You can I call him Matthew. We also appreciate others whom he selected that you and I might have thought should have been the furthest of the ones, because isn't it said of them in Acts 4.13, they were unlearned and ignorant men, but God used them. And the church today still stands as a standard and a record of what they initially began to accomplish for they blazing that gospel across the Roman Empire, converting and planting congregations and churches. Isn't it amazing to notice God used them? Can he use me too? Can he use you as well? Sure he can. That brings us to our last lesson of our study tonight. Might we revisit for a moment that rather unusual scene of events about God's attempt to kill Moses. Now might we be quick to say that if God truly wanted to take life, he can do it. He's all-powerful. He's unlimited in that regard. What God wished to do in the language that one would see in the Hebrew was to capture the attention of Moses and to capture the attention also of his family. Because here was the man who was going to be the leader of the children of Israel, the person who would lead them out of Egypt. He was to be a prophet. He was to be the spokesman of God to them. He needed to have a life completely clothed in purity and one that was honorable of every detail of the deliverance of God's will. But yet here was a short-sightedness on his part. Though he had a son, that son was far past eight days old. Moses had never circumcised him. Moses had failed to do one of the very things that had been a part of the covenant God made with that people. Here was God's object lesson. No commandment is too small to overlook it. No commandment is too small to view it as trivial. No commandment is too small to perceive it as unimportant and insignificant. 
Moses, you didn't circumcise your son. You need to take care of that matter so that you can have a life that others can look to as one appropriate to be the leader of my people out of Egypt. I would submit that's a notable lesson for us again today, isn't it? For that hits at the very heart of hypocrisy, doesn't it? How successful will I be or you to try to study with someone or in fact encourage them to remove the sinful activities of their life if they can say, but look at you. Last week I saw you over there. I saw you doing this. Your life, it seems, is no cleaner than mine. You notice that Moses' life needed to be cleansed, if you please, to completely obey that which was God's commands. And there is no difference in that principle for you and me still today. It's no wonder that Jesus in Matthew 7 warned about hypocrisy when he said, speaking about judging, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet, it shall be measured unto you again. Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. He continues in the next two verses to say, In your attempt to remove that speck from another brother's eye, what about the log that's in your own? First, remove the log from your own eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck that might be in a brother's eye. That helps us see that we start here, don't we? We make sure that our life is the purity it should be. Then we're ready to admonish, exhort, and encourage others in the way that we would be able rightly to do. Thus, we learn about the importance of the commands of God. Isn't it still a constant reminder in Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9? Though he were a son that learned to obedience by the things which he suffered, and be made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. He didn't say to obey most of his commandments, or that obey the majority of his commandments. He said that obey him. No commandment is to be overlooked. No command is to be viewed as inappropriate or insignificant or trivial. Tonight, as we draw this lesson to its conclusion, we could summarize that which we've learned very briefly in this summary slide. We have engaged in a fruitful study, I, I trust, of chapters 3 and 4, seeing the next saga when Moses, in fact, finally did appreciate and come to his commissioning. Though he objected, though he had questions, finally God did convince him that he was the one into Egypt he went. But as he did so, even he needed to be reminded of the importance of every command that God had given. And so in summary, those lessons that we've seen, may we never forget or overlook God's holiness, but appreciate it in the appreciation of our worship, for instance. May we also understand that God's will in terms of the work of the church is accomplished through you and through me. In the third place, we also saw that there are no good reasons for not serving the Lord. And finally, we saw the need for complete obedience to every commandment that God has given. As you think back again to that third of those lessons, let's apply that as we move toward our song of invitation. There's no good reasons for not serving God. If there might be one or more in the audience this evening that would be in need of a public response, there's no good reason for you not to respond tonight. If you've never become a Christian, why not tonight? Satan will try to hold you back, I understand. 
He will offer one reason after another why Wednesday will be better or next Sunday will be better. Don't accept that argument. You may not have Wednesday. You may not have Sunday. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Also, if you need prayers of strength and encouragement, why not tonight? If your life has not been as it should be, there's sin in your life and others know of it. Why not tonight to let those sins be prayed for to God by each of us and God has promised to forgive? There's no good reason for you to procrastinate. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, to quote Proverbs 27, verse 1. If you need to respond tonight, why not do that? Well, together we stand and while we sing.